0: I don't really know how to start shows.
1: Come on now, don't start, don't start liking me now.
2: So yeah, I'm funny compared to you. Yeah. Well, you'll see later. i stand for mayhem! I know a lot of fucking idiots who think a lot of shit is mean-spirited just because it goes against what they believe. But the relief of comedy is it takes things that aren't funny and it allows us to laugh about them for an hour. <laughs> we got a purple suit to buy and a gigantic coffin. <laughs> Why
3: are you laughing? Evening, everybody. Welcome to Why Are You Laughing, a history of comedy podcast. And today I am pleased to introduce to you the legendary Mel Brooks, one of the uh, greatest, I mean, comedy filmmakers of all, but honestly, one of the most acclaimed filmmakers of all time, really. Um, a, uh, a genuine legend who I'm not. Uh, it's interesting um, because I think Mel Brooks career is kind of a lesson on. Um, taking the right path in in comedy or entertainment in general. Um, So we will get into that today. Uh, Definitely a more well-known figure than uh, Mort Saul, who we covered a couple weeks ago. And uh, equally, or if not more important, so uh, we'll get to Mel in one minute. But first, I want to tell you about BlindMike.net, because if you're not I'm there yet. If you're not on Patreon uh, or all the free links, whether it be Apple, Spotify, YouTube, um, then you're not a real, you know, you listen to why you're laughing. You're not a real fan. Yeah, you you're know, you also a sucker. You're a coward is what you are. <laughs> so uh, go to blindmike.net. If you want to just support the show for free, leave a five-star review. Uh, subscribe to the YouTube. I don't know how much that matters now that it's been demonetized for some reason, but you know, subscribe in case we ever figure it out. And uh, if you'd like to throw a few bucks behind us, then go to the Patreon because that's where you get bonus episodes. Um, Whether it be uh, Joe Mattarise part two, the Pelican brief, Opie versus Jim, uh, the Pablo Francisco drinking game, Norm on the view. And uh, we've got a couple coming in March as well. I think the next one I'm looking to do might be, do you remember a guy named Tucker Max? No he's uh he was honestly kind of the first Portnoy, like I think if he didn't get exposed, he might have had the career that Dave Portnoy ended up having um and then he uh it turns out he was a big liar, <laughs> so we will uh we'll tell his story on the patreon coming up soon, so look for that um if you want to subscribe and uh yeah, so Mel Brooks, would you consider yourself a Mel Brooks
0: fan, Craig? Um I like things that he's done but I I couldn't say I'm a, a it's
3: funny. I think that's kind of the response everywhere. There's a, there there are people that say I'm a diehard Mel Brooks fan. But I feel like the most common answer is like yeah I like his I like his best stuff. You know, but I it's for whatever reason I feel like um he doesn't have as many uh you know uh, diehard fans as a lot of other uh, big figures in comedy. But if you look at what he's done just as a a filmmaker He's up there with some some of the greats ever. Like not a lot of guys win Academy Awards for comedy. No, Um, and he's a true egot winner. Like you know, a lot of times when you see people have won uh, Emmy, Grammy, Oscar, and Tony, uh, I consider it um, kind of a uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Cheating, I guess. (laughs) Like when you see a composer on, it's like ah, that doesn't really count. You weren't going for all four. You just lucked into it, but. Uh, Mel Brooks genuinely won all four of those for things he uh, created. So we will uh, dive in. But he had the, uh, pretty much a stereotypical comedy childhood. Um, his father passed away when he was very young. Uh, he was born on the coffee table of tenement housing. And uh, I think based on the, the context that he tells the story, I knew that Tenement housing was obviously very poor housing, uh, but I just wanted to make sure, like, look into exactly what it was. And it's a single family house that multiple families live in. And they would, like, quarter off these rooms. Essentially, a lot of the rooms were windowless and very tight. So it's like, you know, uh, section eight to the 10 millionth degree, essentially, is what tenement housing sounds like. (laughs) Um, So that's how I grew up without a father. Single mother. Um, They were not very well off. He said his brothers, uh, I think he was the youngest of uh, five, four or five. I forget if he said he had four brothers or the youngest of four. Um, But they essentially were like the uh, father figures in his life. And if you've ever seen Mel Brooks, he was a a scrawny little guy. Um, So, you know growing up in the, in the streets of New York that could sometimes be tough. And he kind of gives a reason that you'll hear a lot of comedians give um, for how they got funny. Like if you grew up in a certain era, you kind of had to either be tough or funny. And so that's what Mel Brooks talks about here as uh, well as the kind of influence uh, his father, uh, or his, rather his father's passing had on him. Uh, he did an interview with Playboy back in the day that got very deep into his life. And um, that's what that's what this excerpt is from. I figured you'd rather hear a, uh, a narrator's summary would be better than my uh, just rambling of it. So uh, let's hear a little, little bit of that during the interview, he talked about the intimacy of male
4: relationships in his movie Blazing Saddles. As he explained, I can't tell you what sadness, what pain it is to me never to have known my own father. If only I could look at him, touch his face, see if he had eyebrows. Maybe in having the male characters in my movies find each other, I'm expressing the longing I feel to find my father and be close to him. In that 1975 Playboy interview, Brooks also revealed that he and most of the other Jewish kids in his neighborhood didn't swim because they would get picked on by other kids. If they did go to the pool, they had to travel in packs to protect themselves. Even in his predominantly Jewish neighborhood, he was, in his own words, scrawny. But he found another way to make himself valuable. As he put it, Why should they let this puny kid hang out with them? I gave them a reason. I became their jester. Also, they were afraid of my tongue. I had it sharpened and I'd stick it in their eye.
3: And that, you know, I I feel like you hear that from a lot of comedians is they kind of built a sense of humor as uh, like a shield, essentially, like they they weren't physical guys. They weren't, you know, physically imposing. So they were like, I got to figure out a way to not get picked on. Maybe I'll just use my words, which is uh, how a lot of comedians are birthed. And the other thing with, you know, growing up um, without a father, that's another very common trait of a comedian. And it's an interesting um, insight into parenting because it almost makes you think like, I maybe mean, I shouldn't be too good to my kids, you know? I could b- create a great filmmaker if I just uh, abandon this kid now, you know?
0: Yeah, if you just trip him once in a while, you may be on the gravy train later on. Give, give him some adversity, yeah. for God's sake. <laughs> yeah.
3: And that is what, you know, adversity is exactly what a lot of these older guys, I know I talk about it uh, every time we bring up someone uh, kind of from the World War II generation. But the, uh, the type of lives they led and genuinely lived uh, back then is, is so different than what anyone in entertainment now uh, deals with growing up. Um, so, uh, Mel Brooks, another guy that served in World War II, and he was really, unlike a lot of our characters, you know, we talked about Chevy Chase and Lenny Bruce and uh, people like that who have done everything they could to avoid. Um, serving serving in the uh, military, Mel Brooks was like a genuine patriot, and he saw you know kind of a cause that he wanted to fight for, and that's what uh led him to the army. so uh, he talks a little bit about that here.
1: You fought in uh, in World War II. You served. I you was, fought. Did you, see, did you see any action?
5: A little. A little. A little. Action. I was short. I lived. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they, <laughs> it's good. they shoot over you. They shoot over you, yeah. Went, listen, the Army sent me to, the Army specialized training programs, sent me to VMI. When I was 17, when I was 18, I was in the regular Army. And at VMI, I had studied electrical engineering, cosines, tangents, slide rules, find it. And the Army said, well, since he studied engineering, we'll put him in the uh, combat engineers. So they did. And uh, what do you do? You you take a bayonet and you look for for mines, planted mines. Uh, and they could blow up a tank. I mean, they're big, they're tele-mines. And if, Your so job you job was to try
1: and find with bayonets? Just to
5: t- you find them and unearth them and yeah. take them. You know, really, that was part of the combat engineer's job. And if you if could blow up a tank, I mean, it could certainly take away a Jew in no time. <laughs>
3: I thought that was a good line, <laughs> but um, you know, it's interesting because when he when he talks about uh, his service, genuinely, like he saw what the cause was, and growing up a Jewish kid, um, you know, he saw Hitler was uh, none too keen on the Jews, and Mel Brooks said, "This guy's got to be stopped." But it was also interesting. Uh, he did. Marin's podcast years ago. We'll play a little bit of that later. Uh, but one thing he did mention that I found interesting was um, when he served and they ended up talking about this where I guess this was uh, common. I guess uh, when he served, he was not aware of the like, concentration camps or at least like the extent to which they went and things like that. Like a lot of that wasn't found out until years later. Everyone knew Hitler, you know, couldn't be bothered with the Jewish people. But he didn't realize to what extent it went, uh, which I find very interesting and makes sense because news doesn't travel in the same way it does now. You know, plus they, you can't really get the uh, surveillance you can now, so it's not
0: like you're gonna see like the
3: <laughs> yeah, exactly. So it does make sense, but I never really thought of that. You I, know, like uh, I, I just assumed they knew everything that was going on, right? Um, but yeah, he he he's like very proud of his service and talks about how he still has his um, you know his military. Uh, fatigues and all of that. Um, so, like a uh, you know uh, a genuine American, and that really influenced his career because there's uh, there's a real theme of his Hitler stuff, um, as well as just history in general. You know, like Blazing Saddles is a western. Um, the uh, history of the world, obviously, like you know, obviously they, it's all parody and satire, but it is influenced by. You know, some interest in, um, you know, the country and history and things like that. So uh, but so his career is, again, when we talk about these old guys, uh, they all start similarly because they had to figure out they just wanted to be entertainers. And they didn't really know how to accomplish that. So they had to be, you know, song and dance men or, you know, spin plates and juggle or whatever the fuck they had to do to get onto a stage. So Mel Brooks, I mean, if you know his career, you know, he is interested in music. Um, And that started with him being a drummer. Um, So, you know, he would play uh, drums in different bands and things like that. And uh, one night, he had to replace a comic. The comic got sick and they were like, can anyone uh, fill in for him? And he's like, well, I remember his jokes. <laughs> and so he just went on stage and repeated this guy's act. Um, and then, that, you know, he would do uh, like later he would do impressions. He did an impression of Sinatra and things like that. Um, but, Here's where I, well, first of all, um, his birth name is Melvin Kaminsky, and the reason he went with Mel Brooks is uh, his mother's maiden name is, I I believe it's uh, Brookman, Um, but he went with Brooks because that's what fit on the drum set, (laughs) but Kaminsky was too long to fit on the drums, so he just had to put something, and he was like, ah, Mel Brooks, I guess, and that just stuck, so. Solid name. Yeah. Yeah, much better than Melvin Kaminsky, actually. <laughs> I wonder if we would ever have known the name Melvin Kaminsky. I'm not he going to see that movie. Yeah, right. Um, so uh, I, I find that interesting, the fact that like he kind of started technically in stand-up um, because the little I've watched, I mean, I guess I've watched more than the average person now, just prepping for uh, this episode. But, you know, I, you could argue I don't know the full scope of uh, Mel Brooks's, uh, what he could have done as a stand up. But, like, from what I've seen, Mel Brooks strikes me as someone who's conversationally uh, a little schmaltzy. Like, he started in the cat scales, and that's very evident. Um, by the way, side note one thing he mentioned that I found interesting that it never dawned on me before, um, similar to the World War II thing I mentioned. Uh, he talked about like performing in the cat scales and he's like, you know, obviously um, they, they only, you only perform there in the spring and summer. Like there, there are no performances in the winter and it, that never dawned on me. Cause I know all these guys go through the cat scales. and I was like, oh, that's right. It's in the Northeast. So it's like a seasonal business. So comedy at one point essentially was seasonal, at least in certain parts of the country. That'd be tough. <laughs> yeah. I can't <laughs> laugh right now. It's, it's too cold. Yeah right yeah there's no <laughs> I can't go see a show because the weather. <laughs> um, what was I saying? Oh, so Mel Brooks as a standup is kind of an interesting lesson to me because um, to me he comes off like ha- hack is the wrong word, but it's the feeling I have. Does that make sense? Yeah. You know what I mean? Like a little schmaltzy, almost like an old man you'd talk to. You're like, ah, oh, that's kind of funny. But if you're around him too long, you're like, yeah, eh, it, we got it. It's tough to it's tough to be a hack when you're like you're the first. <laughs> well, that's but it's not what I, I'm just saying. Conversationally, I wouldn't be like, this is the funniest guy ever. Oh yeah, no, definitely. you know what I mean. Right. Yet as a filmmaker, you could absolutely make that argument. So I guess all I'm trying to say is it's interesting. Like if he was dedicated to stand up, if he said I have to be a stand up comedian, we may not even know who Mel Brooks is. Um, and now, in, because he chose the right path, in my opinion, uh, you know he's one of the greatest filmmakers of all time, and his movies like still hold up today. Like they're discussed today, uh, years and years later. So, um, oh, the like uh, he got basically he always knew he says that he wanted to be in entertainment and that I do believe like a lot of times when people say shit like that, I think it's kind of revision of history, but like when you do hear him in interviews, like I said, he's not necessarily my favorite interview to listen to, but you can tell he's an entertainer. Like he's very on, he's always performing. Right. Um, he's an interesting guy. So like he does seem like a guy who genuinely was like, no, I'm not working in the, the garment district or whatever. I want to be on stage, you know?
0: Yeah. This doesn't get me going
3: yeah sick so, dress so uh basically mel, mel is a guy that what i what i have learned um in in prepping for this episode is essentially mel brooks career is a lesson in persistence because basically he hung around he would hang around guys like um sid caesar who was one of his uh, biggest influences and um biggest uh, uh you know had so probably the biggest impact on Mel Brooks career. Um, he would kind of just always be around like they, you know, these guys would be at certain clubs and things and Mel didn't necessarily have a reason to be there, but he would make sure he was there to kind of build a relationship with these guys. And eventually one day, Sid Caesar was like, all right, do you want to jump? <laughs> He's like, yeah, sure. Why not? Um, so we'll get more into that in a minute, but what uh clip wise, where are we at? Hitler. Yeah. So like I said, Hitler, Uh, largely influenced his
2: career, and he talks about that a little bit. One day, (laughs) the commissary was crowded. We only had 20 minutes to eat. I took my general step. We're dressed up. I am, I swear, I'm not making this up. Let me see. I want to get my comb so I can prove it. This proves it. I went out like this, as Hitler. I went out as Hitler, with my mustache and my hat, my uniform, all of us, the Nazi general staff, we went to the Apple Pantale on Pico Boulevard to have an Apple Pantale. Well, you never saw a service like that in your life. <laughs> 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 they were.
5: Normally, you know, they, can I get you anything else, Mr. Hitler? More <laughs> <laughs> water, Mr. Hitler? I mean, I mean, we were in and out of there in about 10 seconds. I mean, but you, we really... You we really, must- really
0: you get canceled for saying that now.
3: <laughs> Can I get you anything else, Mister Hitler? Uh, Mel Brooks is also a guy. And I th- always thought this about Letterman too. He seems better as an old man. Like he he fits better as an old man. For some oh reason. yeah,
0: he was built to be an old man.
3: <laughs> yeah, like he was supposed to be. Looking at him young is weird. Maybe that's just because I know him as an old man. I think but he just feels right as yeah. an old guy.
0: Oh, for sure. He's ninety six right now. Just, yeah, just old yeah. as hell.
3: <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, he, he talked about Hitler and it's not, it wasn't even necessarily a thing like growing up as a Jewish kid, uh, during world war II. he said he was more fascinated and like, like he talked about there, like the power and how one man could influence that greatest scope of the world. You know, like how one guy being charismatic and influential, like genuinely changed the course of time. And that really fascinated him. So, um, he he would kind of use that in uh, different ways in in his works throughout his career. Uh, all right, let's let's move on from Hitler into some lighter stuff here.
0: You got Karl Reiner and the two thousand year old man.
3: Yeah. So Karl Reiner is. Genu- he, he, here's one thing I liked learning about Mel Brooks: is he seems like, and this is probably true of old Hollywood in general, much more so than now. But Mel Brooks built, like, genuine, very long-lasting friendships. Um, And Carl Reiner is probably the most prominent of those. Um, But Sid Caesar, he was friends with until he died. Um, His wife, his second wife, um, but uh, uh, is Anne Bancroft, he was with for 40 years, I think, until she died. Um, so he, he he genuinely built these like long standing relationships in Hollywood and, you know, now because there's so much money involved and things like that, I don't feel like you see that, but the nice thing about old Hollywood and why people like going back to watch, you know, old Carson's and the Dean Martin roasts and shit like that is because you got the vibe that it was a tight knit community. Right, they're friends, and now that doesn't exist just because of the internet. Essentially, like now there are very famous people uh, that have never even had to go to Hollywood. (laughs) You know, they've just made a TikTok and gained (laughs) you know ten million followers.
0: Right, you go back then, like you take the biggest actors, and you know they're hanging out. A few times a year, at least, you know? Because
3: they kind of have to.
0: Yeah. Right. And (laughs) and now you could take the two most famous. I don't even know who the hell that would be right now, but they'd probably never even seen each other.
3: (laughs) Yeah. I mean, The Rock and Leo were certain. I've certainly never been in a movie together. I don't know if they hang out a lot, but. Right. Exactly. um, uh, Yeah. So uh, I I lost track of where we are. Get me back on track here. Uh,
0: Carl Reiner and. Oh,
3: that's right. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So one of his most famous. Bits are one of the things he's most known for And that's even hard to say Because he has so many monstrous hits um, uh, But something he's very well known for And still will do um, Like I found a clip of him doing this at, uh, Like on the uh, Emmys or Oscars in uh, 2014 um, So they, they kept this up for a very long time But this is Carl Reiner talking about them Coming up with the 2000 year old man bit
6: When he was about 21 years old, I was about 25, he was a friend of Sid Caesar's, not working on the show, and he came to visit once, and the first day I was there, this man stands up and he starts to uh, say he was a uh, a, a pirate, a Jewish pirate, (laughs) and I'll never forget the first lines, he says, you know, he says, I can't set sail anymore. I can't afford to set sail. He says, you know, what they're charging for a sale sailcloth, $4 and a yard. I can't afford to pillage and rape anymore. <laughs> the first words I heard from him, and then- Those first words out of Mel Brooks's mouth. Yes, and the following day I came in, there was a program called, We the People Speak. And I said, that's a good program to satirize. And I, I said to Mel, Here's a man who was actually at the scene of the crucifixion 2,000 years ago. <laughs> Is that true, sir? And he went, Oh boy. I just, you knew Jesus? He says, thin lad, right? He walked around with 12 other guys, sandals they wore. He says, They came into the store all the time, asked for water. I gave it to them. They were nice guys, never bought anything. That was the first that line. That was the beginning of it. And then for the next 10 years at parties, when it was dull anywhere, we'd get up and, and do it. And it took 10 years to get it on record.
0: And then it blew up. Yes. That's such a great detail. Yeah, they never bought anything. <laughs>
3: <laughs> yeah, and that's the, that's the beauty of that bit is it's very, like, it's, a, it's a you know, an older Jewish guy. But the the, the bit is that he's 2,000 years old. <laughs> so he's talking about Jesus and the crucifixion. <laughs> So it is genuinely a very funny bit, but one thing I do find another thing I kind of love about that era. And I'm very interested in is that they would always talk about a lot of these bits that we've talked about. Um, I forget, I forget the other examples, but there, there have been others that we've discussed where it comes from like a nugget of an idea that these guys would do a parties. So like we said, there'd be these Hollywood parties and, you know, Carl Reiner and Mel Brooks are there and someone says, Hey, do that, you know, 2000 year old man bit and they'll just break into it and everyone will kind of gather around and watch it. And all I can think of when he's telling that story, just because I guess we grew up in a very different era, is how hard I would be rolling my eyes. Oh, look at these two douchebags. I know. <laughs> <laughs> Meanwhile, they're two of the greatest comic minds who ever lived. <laughs> but, the worst part would be being dragged into
0: it. You are like, oh, all these people <laughs> oh, are looking on. at me. Come on.
3: Yeah, the worst would be being Mel Brooks at the fifth party you have to do it at, you're like, I just want to have a drink and enjoy myself, <laughs> come on.
0: Cocktail weenies, dude, I've missed them man, at at the, the last four places.
3: <laughs> I'm always working at these things, yeah. <laughs> um, But, you know, the reason I uh, brought up that bit is because it turned into an incredibly successful album. And Carl Reiner said that basically all they had to do, like, someone mentioned to them, hey, you know, this could actually make a good comedy album because comedy albums kind of started around that uh, time. And they said, all right. And they wouldn't do a recording studio. It took them two hours. They cut it down to 47 minutes and we're just like, here you go. and <laughs> Sold tons of copies. So <laughs> pretty easy work for something that's still remembered, you know, uh, 60, 70 years later. That's wild. Um, But yeah, like I said And you heard Carl Reiner say there uh, I don't know if you caught it Where he said uh, he would hang around uh, With Sid Caesar Not working there (laughs) So uh, these guys ended up working On your show of shows um, Which was Sid Caesar's show And he hired Mel Brooks And Carl Reiner And Neil Simon Um, Another thing I do like you know, I kind of I uh, shit on the schmaltiness of Mel Brooks in some of these interviews. But there are other times where he's very honest and very funny. And another, like, I guess uh, Neil Simon's brother, Danny Simon, also wrote on that show, Your Show of Shows. And uh, Marin told him this story where he goes, Hey, you know, I went to um, a, a writing class that was taught by Danny Simon. And uh, Mel's like, Oh, no kidding. And he goes, yeah, you know, he, he, was very, uh, he was a very bitter guy. And he kept telling us basically how he taught his brother everything he knows. And Mel just goes, yeah, he was always like that. It's not true. We didn't teach him anything. <laughs> <laughs> so, I love when those guys get to a certain age. They're like, I don't give a fuck. <laughs> <laughs> what do I got to lose? Um, but your show of shows, it was a variety show, um, uh, you know, there's nothing you can really compare variety shows to now. Cause now like SNL would be considered a variety show. Um, but back then they were this big production. Uh, but by all accounts, your show of shows was very innovative and kind of cutting edge uh, for that time for the fifties. And like I said, they had these great writers. I think Woody Allen wrote on it towards the tail end. And there are a lot of parallels um between uh, Woody Allen and Mel Brooks. And I thought Mel Brooks had a great, Description of it where he said essentially what he said boils down to like Mel was um, very macro and Woody was very micro in the topics they chose. Like essentially Mel was like, I covered um, big, you know, big world. I covered space and Westerns and, you know, Hollywood and all these big, big topics. Whereas Woody would kind of examine like the inner workings of one individual man. And so they were these kind for like young Jewish kids. Like it would be those two guys became like the, you know, the go-to names or faces for what was considered Jewish comedy. Um, and they're very different guys. There are similarities that you can kind of see. Like for, I think the best example might be that you can tell like Larry David was definitely influenced by both guys in for, different ways. For sure. Um, but, like, uh, yeah, there are major differences, too. And I think, like I said, Larry David, probably a fan of both. but I think generally speaking, you kind of gravitated towards one or the other, Woody Allen or Mel Brooks, uh, because they are so different, in my opinion. Uh, all right.
6: What's next? More on Carl and Mel. Oh, it's here. It. If you have one good friend, you're lucky. And I have one good friend. I call him my best friend. My life is, is fuller because I've had Mel in my life. If he doesn't come over, I don't know what to do with myself. He comes over every night. We love movies. And we said any movie that has three or four lines in it, and we hear those, we know we're in for a good time. The lines are lock all the doors, <laughs> secure the perimeter, and let nobody in and out, and get some rest. <laughs> he became an entity, and that entity wrote some of the best and most memorable movies of all times. I mean, to this day, farting is okay because he wrote a movie called uh, Blazing Saddles. <laughs>
3: <laughs> yeah, that is a thing like, uh that you can kind of credit Mel Brooks for is a lot of the silliness um, that is you know, very, very common now and through the last, uh, probably 40 years or so. But, uh, before that, you wouldn't get stuff like that. Like there wouldn't be, you know, sort of crass humor. And Mel's not the only one that paved the way for that, obviously. Um, but he was one, uh, that did pave the way for a parody and just mocking things that we otherwise would have taken seriously. Um, and I mean, the big example would be Hitler, which uh, I think we'll talk a little bit about when we talk about the producers. Uh, but the main reason I I liked that clip is that uh, I think their their friendship is really like nice to hear about. Yeah, because like it, it seems very genuine. And like I said, it was kind of nice to see Mel Brooks seems like a, a genuine guy who built these relationships that lasted you know, in some cases, 70 years, like Carl Reiner just died a couple of years ago and they would go to each other's house. Um, like in interviews, in interviews, Mel would very casually say like, yeah, I was at uh, Carl's house last Wednesday, of course, because like he would go over, you know, three times a week. Carl Reiner was basically like, you know, if he wasn't working on something, I essentially couldn't get rid of the guy. We were always hanging out. Um, whereas now like there's these people that are kind of marketed together and we think like we're, we're sold that they are best pals when in reality, it's like a working relationship. So it's just like, it's nice when you see them uh, uh, come through as reality once in a while, you know,
0: especially when they get canceled. You're like, I, I'm not friends with that guy. That's just, it would have been interesting
3: if Mel Brooks ever got canceled or Carl Reiner, see if they stuck with each yeah, other. because yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I never really knew the guy, you know, <laughs> we worked together. Yeah,
0: <laughs> Carl Reiner deletes his Instagram.
3: <laughs> yeah, Carl Lander's like, no, I wasn't just the straight man and the 2,000-year-old man. I genuinely didn't understand it. That's why I kept asking all those questions.
0: It's like, this isn't very fair. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, but the next clips is the producers.
3: All right, let's uh, hear a little bit about it because I, I also didn't know. Um, essentially, my introduction to the producers was the season of Curb Your Enthusiasm where uh, Larry David is playing Max Bialystock. <laughs> yes. So before that, I, I wasn't too familiar. I didn't realize how um, uh, impactful the producers was. Um, but let's hear about it.
2: I was doing a show mm-hmm. and uh, the producer of the show, Broadway show, said, uh, look, uh, they, they, they want to release. So what are, you, what are we doing next? What are we doing next? Uh, well, well, give me a title. hmm. I said, we're doing a musical called Springtime for Hitler. Tell him that. He said, I can't can't tell him that. I said, you tell him that. We're doing Springtime for Hitler. Mm. So, Ed Padula was the producer. He was a little worried. He said, okay. He said, we're doing Springtime for Hitler next. And they said, who's in it? They well, well, we're not sure. You know, we just... We past them. eh? We just gave them the title, you know. And then about a year later, I said, what a wonderful title. Springtime for Hitler. Now, if I can... Uh, get some idea underneath that, you know, a story or something,
7: mm-hmm.
2: I would be very happy. So I thought, I said, well, let me see Springtime for Hitler. If it is a show, it's probably the worst show ever and in the worst possible taste. And I worked back from that. Yeah. And I thought of uh, a Broadway producer. And then I, I thought of, a you know, the Gene Wilder character, Leo Bloom. And, and from there on, it was uh, fun and easy. Yeah.
3: So I never, I, I really never thought of uh, the producers as a a film that was kind of um, striking back against Hitler, (laughs) but he got a lot of pushback for that. And, you know, people, and there's still plenty of stuff like this today, but people were like, Hey, you can't satirize Hitler. And Mel Brooks would say, and you know, a lot of the the innovative guys of this time um, were pretty, pretty unanimous on this. And Mel Brooks was one of, one of the, um, uh, kind of one of the leaders of the charge that said like, hey, if you, if you debate Hitler, then you're just as bad as him because you're kind of giving his points credence. You're saying, hey, you know, we're having a back and forth here. We're debating whether or not you are correct by slaughtering an entire race of people. said, <laughs> what you do is you make fun of him. <laughs> you just make him seem silly. And then people are less likely to buy into his horse shit. And that's something I feel like we've kind of forgotten now. Well, you it, know, it was I, as
0: late as the 90s as we found out.
3: Yeah. I mean, well, like I always say, these guys um, these guys blaze the trail that we have been continuously dragging brush back over for the last 20 years or so. You know, it's weird because when, you know, Mel Brooks is a, an older man now, um, when he does pass away, uh, there will be all sorts of tributes That say how he was a trailblazer He was an innovative guy He paved the way for so many people And then the next time There's a parody of something out there That we deem offensive We will jump on that person And you know try to ruin them and have it taken down Crucify them immediately Yeah so we, he's, he's a trailblazer to an extent It didn't sink in with any of us really But <laughs>
0: uh, Next we got Dustin Hoffman
3: Uh, Oh, yeah, this is a little more from the producers. I didn't, uh, I I had never heard this. You hear a lot about guys like big names that turned down movies that became big. Uh, But this is interesting, because it's more about a guy who was a uh, no name playing a minor part that became Dustin Hoffman.
2: You wanted Dustin Hoffman in the producers. Dustin,
5: he, yeah, Dustin Hoffman was going to play Franz Liebkin, the crazy German with the helmet playwright. And he was he lived on my block in in the village. And, and I'd seen him in a couple of things and I knew he was incredibly talented and I wanted him to play the Nazi and I, I read the script over the telephone to him and he said, I'll do it and I said, okay, it's a done deal. You are Franz Liebkind in The Producers. Okay. Uh, three months later, uh, I hear pebbles against my window at like one in the morning pebbles and i i said what is this Cyrano? who am i roxanne what you know what's going on and it's i opened the window it's dustin and he's a little drunk and he's in the street i said dustin you live a couple of houses up the block and he said i have great news Maybe not for you. <laughs> so I said, what is it? He said, they want me to audition opposite Anne, your wife, as Benjamin in the graduate. Well, I knew the script, you know. I said, go, go to Hollywood. You're a mutt. I'm not worried. The minute they see you on film, they'll say, oh, this is ridiculous, you know. <laughs>
3: <laughs> it's very, just very. I thought it was just very funny to be like, I'm actually gonna play your wife's love interest and become one of the biggest stars of my generation. <laughs> Thanks like, for the offer, but <laughs> I like how they're like.
0: He's like, yeah, you know, they're, they're not gonna see much. <laughs>
3: <laughs> yeah, big deal. Um, so, what's interesting too? He mentioned his wife and Bancroft. Um, he was married. He did get married very young. And uh, divorced fairly early, and he kind of just I don't re- really know the full story, uh, but basically one day he kind of just like left <laughs> and he was sued for um, an illegal separation uh, by his first wife. And essentially, when he talked about it years later, he was basically just like, "I got married too young. I didn't know what I was doing." Um, so I don't know the full story there, but a lot of these guys that we talk about wind up getting married. You know, three, four, five times, and I always like whenever I see that. I'm like, what do they think would be different the, the the fifth time?
0: You know, you would think the second, and especially the third time, you're like, I know what red flags are. Yeah, let me
3: hesitate here. What if we just were committed to each other, but not legally? You know? Yeah. Uh But Mel had a a genuine love story. Like he he uh, met Anne Bancroft, and they became. A genuine like power couple because I said Mel's uh, an EGOT winner. She also won uh, an Emmy, Oscar, and a Tony. like well, she didn't sing, so she never won a Grammy. But as far as acting goes, she won the big three. So that is like as far as uh, talent goes, you would think that was just a marriage, like a fa- almost a fake Hollywood marriage. But then when you see them in any interviews, you're like, oh, these two genuinely. Uh, loved each other. So I think we have Ann talking about that in a bit, but I don't want to get too far ahead of myself. I was going to
0: say, you want me to go to it? <laughs> uh,
3: what's that? Let's stay let's stay in order here.
0: Uh, this is him on Marin talking about Jewish timing.
3: Yeah, so this goes to what um, I was talking about a little. By the way, like I said, he won um, an Oscar. For, like, he beat uh, Stanley Kubrick, I think, was also nominated that year. He won an Oscar for The Producers. Um, and you never see that with comedy. Now, to be fair, I don't know in the 60s if the Oscars were as snobby an event. Like, I watched a clip of him um, accepting the award and Sinatra and Rickles introduce him. And it seems very lo- loose. It seems much looser than the Oscars became. So I don't know if it's something that, like, you know, the the prestige and snobbiness that is applied to the Oscars now, was applied in the 60s. But you'll never see a comedy win these days, really.
0: No, it wasn't all about, like, uh, you know, stuff that has nothing to do with why you're there.
3: Yeah. (laughs) So that's probably why. Um, But I apologize. Oh, you said uh, the Jewish tie. Yeah, so this is what I was uh, talking about, where, like, you know, there is a a brand of comedy um, that guys like Mel Brooks kind of created.
2: There's a timing to it. You know, you have this amazing timing. I was watching the stuff, uh, the old Cavett stuff, and there's something innate about uh, that timing. And, and I
5: believe that with the show shows and everything else, you, that the Jewish timing dictated most of modern comedy. Yeah, you know, it has to do with fear. Yeah. You know, there's an, there's a great energy mm-hmm. that fear can create. Yeah. You know, is that can is that I coming for me is that you know is that a is that a fucking swastika what am, you know there's a like fear it's it's always lurking yeah yeah so that, i mean and it creates it, it creates a, a pizzazz an energy yeah. you know,
2: you know <laughs> it's fight, a fight fight or flight yeah. it's right yeah. there for every jew you know? yeah, yeah yeah and there's also that sort of uh, you know being funny is sort of an acceptable way of being hostile right which i i think is helpful right but it, it,
3: that's very true of Marin's comedy, but, uh, but yeah, I think, I think there's a, a lot to that. Like, um, you know, that in some ways for we've kind of forgotten, in many ways we haven't. But I, I, what I find most interesting about that is guys like Mel Brooks, Woody Allen, uh, Mort Saul, who we talked about, these guys kind of had to figure that out on their own and pave the way now if you examine a comedian it's like oh yeah psychologically they're doing that but they might not even realize it because guys like mel brooks kind of created um a formula for them like a template that they could kind of work on that's what i find most interesting about these guys uh that were very early on in like the the modern comedy landscape um but uh you know Like I said, like I said, with his stuff about Hitler is like, that's where a lot of comedy comes from. And I think when you're examining uh, jokes, that is something people should take more into consideration is like, um, you know, Ari Shafir actually says this a lot. And I think it's a a great point that it's like um, people will say to a comedian, like, don't you know that that's a, a sensitive topic? And it's like, oh, well, I'm making a joke about it. So I am actually fully aware of how sensitive it is. I'm bringing it up because I know how hurtful it would be to bring it up. You know, Mm. like I'm using it because I am aware of how awful it is. That's the only reason I'm even mentioning it. you know, there's a reason Mel Brooks wasn't fixated on uh, like a mean, you know, diner owner. Who who ran a tight ship and was mean to his employees. He focused on Hitler because he was aware how sensitive a topic it was, you know? Right. Uh, uh, I think the next the uh the other Marin clip we have is him talking about Sid Caesar, right? Correct. Yeah, so this is another uh another one of his very influential relationships that he had.
5: I was backstage at Tacopa. Oh, yeah. And Sid said, you know, we get along, we 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 hang out, we're funny. He said, uh, they, this guy, Max Liebman, is coming to me. There's some. There's a show called the Admiral Broadway Review. Yeah. It's going to be on on a thing called television. I said, wrestling. Yeah. He said, no, it's actually. Is that all that was on television initially? No, that was Milton Berle. Milton, yeah. Berle. Milton Berle and wrestling. And wrestling. <laughs> that was all that was on. And Sid said, I'll give you 40 bucks a week. Yeah. I said, great. Yeah. He says, just. Write whatever comes into your head. Write, write jokes. Give me the give me the monologues. I have to do them, you know. And I did. We hung out together. It was a pleasure, you know.
2: But was that a decision for you? Did you realize at some point like this stand-up shit's not for me? Like you know, I'm not. You know, I don't want to be stuck in this round act life.
5: No, I put it on the side. I knew I was going to come back to it. Yeah. But I said, I said, Melvin, yes, I always talked to my. I said, this guy's better. This guy's really good. This guy may be a genius. Yeah. And, you know, and so uh, it was a pleasure to write for him.
3: And uh, there's an interview, the three of them, uh, Carl Reiner, Mel Brooks, and Sid Caesar did with Larry King. And you can tell they're genuine friends. And then uh, one of the, I think it was like a Conan appearance or something I watched with Mel Brooks, where uh, he was talking about Sid Caesar. And this was at the end of uh, Sid's life. And he was 91 years old. And he suffered from, I don't know if he had like dementia or Alzheimer's or something like that. But he was he was not mentally all there. But Mel was talking about going, he's like, yeah, I go to yeah, visit him uh, every Friday, every Friday afternoon. And like he, like I said, he's not quite all there. But like he said, if I bring up certain things about the old days, you see him kind of snap in like the old Sid Caesar. And so I stuff like that was just nice. That's my main takeaway from examining Mel Brooks was he seems like a genuinely nice man, which I really liked about him.
0: I do like uh it's such a flex to be like, I was backstage at the Copa.
3: Oh, well that's what I meant. I meant to say, uh, actually it's not, I don't think, I mean, in a way it is, but I took it more as a lesson on persistence because like Mel had no reason to be at a lot of these things. <laughs> and he was just, yeah. he was persistent. And like I'm going to be around this and kind of will myself into existence in their inner circle.
0: Work and out. so that's
3: kind of what that resulted in is Sid Caesar, like seeing him re- eventually realizing he's funny and being like, Hey, do you want to, you know, get, will you write for me? Got it. Because I was, I'm always like,
0: uh, like Rickles used to perform there all the time, and like all this stuff, and people always talk about it. And then, um, it's just it was like the Studio Fifty Four, but way better.
3: Yeah, well, Mel just weaseled his way in, and then eventually belonged there. But
0: <laughs> I'm gonna get this jacket on my own. <laughs>
3: yeah.
0: Um. Next, we got uh, get smart.
3: Yeah. So, um, basically, like Mel's early career was not necessarily considered. Successful. Like I said, he won the Oscar for the producers, um, but financially, I guess uh, by whatever it was expected to do, it was kind of disappointing. Um, and then he did a movie called 12 Chairs that he shot in uh, Yugoslavia, and uh, that was a box office bust as well. And Mel says 12 Chairs, he thinks, um, I forget exactly how he phrased it, not the best movie but like the most fun or the most he enjoyed making them, it was something to that effect. Like that was one of his favorite movies, even though um, financially it didn't necessarily do that well. But he did uh, have his, you know, kind of foothold in TV with Get Smart, which became an institution.
0: Yeah. The Rock ended up, right? Oh, no. Uh, Steve Carell. How
3: Steve Carell. I don't know if there was another one made.
0: Yeah. The, I think The Rock was at the end of that movie.
5: <laughs>
3: oh. <laughs>
4: <laughs>
5: let's there, uh, skip this.
4: forward to uh, Get Smart. Now, how much pressure was there in, in the wake of all the James Bond films
3: to come up with a parody about spies? You know, there was a like the man from Uncle. Uh, Mel does a terrific job answering. What a horrible question! <laughs> <laughs> He's like, mm. why would there be pressure? <laughs> Someone better make a parody of a spy movie. <laughs> I've had it up to here
0: with the lack of spy parodies. Yeah, they retired parodies when like The Godfather
5: came out. He's like, I can't do it.
3: <laughs> but nonetheless, I found Mel's answer interesting. So let's hear.
5: And that that was uh, a great one to satirize. They took themselves very. Very, very seriously, and then there was Cosby, and you know, had done had, had I, done an I spy, I spy thing, and so these spy things between the James Bond, between I Spy and A Man from Uncle, and, and James, we were flooded. We were flooded with spy junk, and I met with Buck Henry, a great writer, who was who, the screenplay writer for The Graduate, which starred my wife Anne Bancroft. as Mrs. Robinson. I ran out there, Mrs. Robinson. Remember that. And so Buck Henry and I decided to write a show called Get Smart, starring Maxwell Smart, starring Don Adams. And the rest is history. I mean, we did it for fun. We never thought it would catch on. We invented this crazy cone of silence, the shoe phone, all of this insanity. And now it's on everywhere, you know.
3: So he was, you know, majorly successful in TV and film, which you didn't necessarily see as much. Back then, like when a guy wins an Oscar, he's not really involved in TV. Back in the day, now that could easily be the case, right? Like Tarantino said, he's working on uh, like an eight-part miniseries or something like that. So now it's very different. But back then, uh, TV was sort of the minor leagues. But you know, he dabbled in both and and did very well. And I also thought it was just interesting to kind of hear his mindset on things because he says like, there was all this spy junk floating around in the world, and that's kind of always how he approached. What topic he would take on Like with you know young Frankenstein It was the horror genre And with Blazing Saddles it was westerns With Spaceballs it was obviously Like Star Wars and Star Trek and all mm-hmm. that So when he would see Kind of like an over Saturation of something He's like well now it's time to make Fun of it you know right. And I feel like that's an art that's been Lost like The last good Parody I can think of like Andy Samberg made a couple. Like I think Pop Star is one of the most underrated movies um, uh, of the last, you know, twenty years. Um, so Andy Samberg's made like good parodies, and like Walk Hard was a great one. Um, like, obviously, Scary Movie back in the day. Um, but I feel like you don't get a lot of that now for some reason, was- which is odd because there's so much to parody.
0: I was just going to say one that came out recently but I don't think it was that recently is uh Tucker and Dale versus Evil. It's about uh not familiar. It's a parody about like kids going uh in the woods on a camping trip and having like psycho locals kill them. Yeah. But it's but well, it's all has, it's it, it, all by accident. It's a very funny movie. <laughs>
3: Well, even including pop star like that did horribly. I think I I remember I wanted to see it in theaters and I think it was only in theaters for like two weeks or something. Jeez, that's not good. Like it did not make a lot of money, but it's a hilarious movie. And for whatever reason, like uh, parodies, there's not been a parody that resonates maybe because it's kind of turned into people doing it in the form of sketches on like TikTok and Instagram. Yeah, um, but as far as films go, and I mean, this is also an argument for what, comedy film has become in general um it doesn't really exist anymore great comedy films but
0: no it's been like super bad was the last great one
3: yeah i mean there's others you could argue that were very good it's Um, been
0: very good maybe but like great like super bad i would consider a great comedy
3: at least that connected with the public you know right like that everyone went and saw but it's because the the kind of sad thing is, um, like I have heard, I heard uh, Matt Damon talk about this a little while back, um, where basically, like DVD sales kind of, or the, you know the the, the uh, invention of streaming and lack of DVD sales kind of killed comedy because what would happen with a comedy like Take Office Space uh, is probably the best example I could think of, where Office Space made no money. No one saw office space in theaters, None. but then for whatever reason, it caught on in DVD sales. And now it's a, uh, you know, cult clad. So it's a classic comedy from the late nineties. Um, so studios knew that even if a movie flopped, if a comedy flopped in theaters, there's a chance they make it up in DVD sales. And now that doesn't exist. Yeah. Like if a movie flops in theaters, Netflix isn't going to pay a shit ton for it. I heard, you know, uh, why I heard, would
0: they? Yeah, exactly. I heard Matt Damon actually talking about this not too long ago And why? That's like, what you, I said. Oh, is that what you? Okay, sorry. Yeah.
3: <laughs> but yeah, like someone clip that for me, please. Please
0: clip it. Uh, <laughs> Craig, I'm the ball as usual. Sorry, I'm just getting my clips in order.
3: <laughs> I um, it. but yeah, anyways, we were uh, uh, derailed there, so that, that gets, gets us back on track, I suppose. Uh, Gene Wilder. Another, uh, another great relationship he had for a long time, although this was more, uh, more of a business relationship that they had. Like um, I saw an interview where Gene said like yeah, they, were, they didn't necessarily have a personal relationship where they uh, were out uh, doing bits together at parties like him and Carl, um, but this is an interesting story from working with him on Young Frankenstein. Mel says it's the only time uh, he was wrong about something, essentially. <laughs>
1: Uh, I want to ask you about Young Frankenstein, which is easily uh, one of the funniest movies ever made, and you co-wrote, you co-wrote this, you co-wrote this film, uh, and and Mel Brooks directed the movie, and uh, I only found out much later on that my favorite scene in the whole movie, and I think for many people their favorite scene, is when Dr. Frankenstein, you, do the number, the tap the tap dance number, putting on the Ritz mm. with the monster. And it's so insane and so absurd. And I only realized later on, I guess, that that was your idea. And Mel Brooks didn't want to do it. Is that right? No, uh,
7: I would write all day. And then he'd come over after dinner and look at, yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, now we need a villain. The Burgermeister right. isn't a good enough villain. We right, need a right. real villain and so on and so on. And one night he came over and he looks at the pages and he says, you tap dance to Irving Berlin <laughs> <laughs> right, right. in Top Hat and Tails with the Monster. Right, right. He said, are you crazy? It's frivolous. Right, right. And uh, I started to argue, and then I argued for about 20 minutes till I was at least red in the face. I think it may have been blue. And all of a sudden, he says, okay, it's in. And I said, well, why did you put me through this? Right. He said, because I wasn't sure if it was right or not. And if you didn't argue for it, I knew it would be wrong. But if you really argued, I knew it was right.
3: And those are the type of the sh- stories you hear about, like the the true geniuses. <laughs> like, right. I would never think I'm going to put this guy through some mental gymnastics and see if he pushes back on me. <laughs> He's the Bill Belichick of directors. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> if I'm ever like, "What the fuck are you talking about?" I mean it. I'm not testing you. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, that just I thought that like spoke very well to Mel's kind of decision-making because at first when you're hearing that story, you're like, why would a guy like Mel be that closed-minded? Like you're making a movie called Young Frankenstein. You know, you're going to be that narrow-minded on something. But then he realizes, like, hey, if this is something Gene really wants to do, we're going to keep it in because I trust him. Um, but if he's not passionate about it, I want it out, you know? Right. Um, so, you know, the, the mark of a great filmmaker, Mel, you've passed my test. <laughs> He's honored. <laughs> I think. Uh, I think his next next one is about something he actually did end up taking out, right? Uh, Blazing Saddles. Yes, sir. Yeah.
1: We were talking about Blazing Saddles. That movie, I really think, in a lot of ways, changed the game. That's how it felt to me when I when I watched it at the time. Uh, it, everyone thought it's the funniest movie we've ever seen. Uh, when that movie came out, was anything. Cut from that film. I mean, it really took everything to the edge. Did you take any scenes out? You know,
5: I I was very brave. I had final cut, so the studio actually legally couldn't trim it. They couldn't cut anything, but I had filmed something, and when I saw it, I got scared. (laughs) I got really got scared, and I said, "I'm going to take that little scene out." It was the scene in which Madeline Kahn is in her dressing room with Cleavon Little. And after they eat schnitzengruben, she she blows out the candles and she says, in her German accent, Oh, is it true? Is it true what they say about you people? How well you're built? Is it true? Is it true? Ah, 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 It's all in the dark now. Ah." And he said, and Cleavon says, I hate to disillusion you, man, but you're sucking on my arm. (laughs) (laughs)
3: <laughs> and uh, on Marin, he said he told the same story, but he said that he's like, now I would have kept it in, um, which I find interesting because he, he was of all the things in that movie. <laughs> well, it's interesting because it's like it tells you just how the goalposts have changed. We talk about like, oh, my God, you know, um, they, we can never get away with this now. But it's like we also do get away with so much more like a sex joke, you can hear a joke like that on terrestrial radio probably you know, right like we do get away with a lot more shit now, it's just some of the topics um, that they got away with, we we can't now so it's just, shit just shifts as much as we complain about it I guess it's. I think the reason I'm most passionate about that sort of subject is like, like I say about the, the trailblazing thing, it's like why were we allowed to and now we're not <laughs> You know, progress should be like now we're allowed to do all of it. We see the error of our ways previously, you know, um, or if you don't
0: like it, don't see it like that simple.
3: Well, so that's the interesting thing about Blazing Saddles and how that's held up, because like you said, if you watch Blazing Saddles, you, that might be the least offensive thing in the film. The thing Mel took out um, because uh, it got a, a disclaimer. This is a big story uh, a year or two ago. Yeah, it was not long ago. Now, like HBO Max put a disclaimer out, like what you're about to see contains blah, blah, blah. Basically, beware of being offended. And I remember that was a big story because a mm-hmm. lot of um, a lot of like anti cancel culture guys were like, fuck this, man. And I was like, no, 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 no. We should be advocating for that. Yes, I agree. It might yeah. be a little silly. I remember that. But. But we should be we should be begging for this. Please give us disclaimers on everything. First of all, it's easy for me. I can't even see it. I don't know what's happening. Right. But if if all you have to sit through is a six second, uh, you know, frame that says, "Hey, this contains uh, language and you know topics you might not like." Hey, this contains okay. funny stuff. Yeah. <laughs> then we're done. Then we get to it. Then we get to see the whole thing. Let's, what? I, right. What I hate is. There are episodes of, you know, Always Sunny and 30 Rock that now don't exist. Gone forever. (laughs) You know, where it's like, all you had to do was put a disclaimer like, hey, you know, it was a different time when I was done in parody and jest, whatever, whatever you have to put on there. But it's still allowed to exist um so i think the disclaimer is a, a great thing that we should be like essentially advocating for
0: exactly i think the problem with the cancel culture people is it was almost presented like a trigger warning and they think that's like
3: eh. yeah you know you i think i my my take on all that is you got to be a little lenient you know well there's nothing gonna, there's wrong with that a give and take once in a while it doesn't it literally doesn't affect the movie at all so just let right, it exactly. fucking ride yeah, yeah. um But the the, Blazing Saddles is a very interesting film for Mel Brooks because, like I said, if you hear him talk or if you've seen any of his other movies, particularly Spaceballs, you're not like, oh, this is a crazy, edgy guy that would never, like, his stuff's not going to hold up in a few generations. (laughs) You wouldn't think that of him, but Blazing Saddles is, like, one of the edgiest movies ever. Um, I think it was, like, AFI put out the list of uh, the top 100 comedies of all time. Um, I think this was years ago, but at, at the time, at least. And Mel Brooks had three in the top 15. Really? It was like Blazing, Blazing Saddles, The Producers, and Young Frankenstein were all considered the, three of the best comedies ever made. Um, but Blazing Saddles is very different in the sense that it is, um, uh, you know, very, very edgy. And uh, we're too sensitive for it today, apparently. <laughs> so uh, Mel Brooks at a lot of levels do him, I guess, is my point. You know, and he was not necessarily uptight about the kind of uh, ground he covered in comedy.
0: Yep. He he was a a very determined fella. He certainly was. As we'll find out in this next clip.
3: (laughs) Is this uh, Anne Bancroft? Yes. Yeah. So we hear from his wife here. I've mentioned her a couple of times, but Anne Bancroft, very successful, very attractive woman. And I think a lot of people looked at um, her and Mel and thought, what the hell is going on? And I think it's another example of Mel's persistence.
7: A guy from way over on the other side of the theater said, Hey, I'm bankrupt. I'm (laughs) Mel Brooks. I want you to know that in two years, no man had ever approached me with that kind of aggression because I had just done two for the seesaw and the miracle worker, you know, and people were very scared of me, especially men. My God, Oh, what was she must be, you know, this strange creature. And, this aggressive voice came out from the dark, and I thought it would be a combination of Clark Gable and Robert <laughs> Taylor and Robert Redford. Turned out to be Mel books. And he never left me. From that moment on, he would say, where are you going? I said, I'm going to William Morris. He said, so am I. he said, where are you going? I'm going to that delicate So am I. No matter where I said I was going, he said he was going there. I'm going to the Bonsoir tonight. So am I. It just went on and on. The man never left me alone.
3: Thank God. <laughs> See, kids, persistence is key as long as you're as much of a gentleman as Mel Brooks. Unless know? there's no physical contact. Well, I mean, this point has been made a million times, I know, but it is funny to hear. If you hear, like, a beautiful love story from 60 years ago and said it in 2023, we'd be like, oh, that is sexual harassment. Sounds <laughs> he's, like he's harassing you. <laughs> No, she seems very much in love. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it is. Uh, it's context, I guess, matters in those situations because Anne Bancroft didn't mind it. And like I said, um, they had a, a seemingly a very uh, loving relationship. And we talks about her, um, you know, it's uh, it's beautiful and it's touching. Um, and she was in. She couldn't have died too long after uh Your Enthusiasm, because I believe she was in the last episode of that season that Mel Brooks is in, but we'll get a, uh, to, yeah, a little more into that in a second.
0: Uh, she died in 2005.
3: two thousand five. Yeah, and I think that season might have been 2004 or maybe even 2005. Oh, wow. He's had to go a while without her. That's sad. Oh, that's, that, that's crazy. I meant to say that earlier, too, is like um, or maybe, you know, I, I, I think I brought it up with Mort Saul, actually, where well, you know, any Bruce died in his 40s. And Mort Saul lived another 60 years after that or something. Yeah. <laughs> 50 years, whatever it was um, that, you know, that's kind of like, not that she, she was still, you know um, she had years that she should have lived, unfortunately, but like she was an older woman and now Mel has been around almost two decades without her, which is pretty crazy. That's sad. Yeah. And that's the the tragic thing about getting that old. Like Carl Reiner is no longer with us since Caesar. Uh, (laughs) It didn't dawn on me until just now. All these beautiful relationships I talked about, they're all sadly ending. (laughs) He's alive and they're all gone. Yeah. She was 73
0: uh, and died of uterine cancer.
3: Yeah. So, like I said, you know, an older woman technically, but not, you know, she had plenty of years left, I think. Yeah. Um, And he's been around for 20 years now since uh, she passed. Um, and it is, you know, I don't know how he's doing today. If you went and visited Mel Brooks, but like, I remember during COVID him and his son, like Max, who's a very popular author. Uh, they made a video, some video about like, you know, basically stay away from your old people essentially. Mm -hmm. And Mel Brooks seemed like he was in, you know, for a 96 year old or 95 at the time, whatever it was, essentially tip top shape. Um, so, you know, he's, he's, he's managed to keep it together for the most part, but that's the wild thing about like the norm. you know, here's something I like about Mel Brooks too, is like in interviews, he seems like a comedian, you know, he seems like a funny guy, whether or not you even find him funny, he has the air of a funny guy. Whereas if you listen to Norman Lear talk, he just seems like an old grump, you know? Right. There's a lot of a lot of geniuses in comedy. Woody Allen's another example. A lot of geniuses in comedy. If you saw them in an interview, you'd be like, "This is a fucking comedian." Uh, But Mel Brooks has like the air of an actual uh, comedian, like a fun-loving guy, like a Judd Apatow, I suppose. (laughs) (laughs)
0: Uh, The last clip we have, uh, Curb
3: Oh, right. The last one already. This flew by. Flew by. Um, Yeah, I mean, you know. There's, there's plenty to talk about with Mel Brooks, but I think we, we covered the, uh, the basics, essentially. But my favorite thing that Mel Brooks ever did was season four of Curb Your Enthusiasm, where the plot line is um, Mel Brooks seeks out Larry David uh, to star in the producers on Broadway. Um, and the the whole plot line is he's co-starring with Ben Stiller, and eventually Ben Stiller can't stand him, they bring in David Schwimmer, and it results in, and if you know anything about the producers, this is classic Larry David tying everything together, the end of the season shows that Mel Brooks wanted to make it a bomb so he could stop doing the producers. Like, if he figured that he had a production that tanked, they would stop renewing him. <laughs> and he's like I know the perfect guy to derail this show it's Larry David if I bring in Larry David it'll be a complete bomb but then Larry ends up doing a great job and so it ruins his life (laughs) so it's a brilliant plot for a season of television yeah and it's it's one of my favorite seasons but one of my favorite things is just that the entire time and while you're watching it you don't realize why necessarily it's very well done but Mel is the only guy, he's the only celebrity cameo that I can think of in the history of Curb, you know, respond with, if I'm missing someone, respond, Um, But he's the only celebrity cameo I can think of where the person com- completely throughout the duration of their time on the show agrees with every point Larry David makes.
0: Oh, yeah, no, that definitely doesn't happen ever again.
3: (laughs) He's the only Mel Brooks is the only and I also wonder because obviously Larry David like loved and respected Mel Brooks. So I wonder if part of that was he just wanted Mel Brooks to like him. (laughs) So that's how he wrote it. (laughs) But uh, it's very well done where everything Larry says Mel's got his back and he's the only one. (laughs) And uh, this is a scene where. Larry has offended Ben Stiller, so Ben Stiller quit the production. And this is uh, the dynamic that they had. I thought it was very good.
6: Do you have any complaints? I mean, how's it going for you? I've got one tiny thing, just one small issue. I'm not happy with the toilet paper in the rehearsal hall. You're going to get
5: the softest, most beautiful toilet paper. You'll be so happy. <laughs> You'll be hanging around the toilet every day. Smell. You'll get me the softer rolls? You got it. All right. Smell. I promise. Can we get to why you asked Larry to come here? Oh, yeah, we have a little problem. Right. Ben Stiller is gone. He is history. He has left us. He came to me and said, it's either me or Larry David. Make up your mind. You know, I went right. Larry David. still around. <laughs> he complained about some things. I don't know, minor stuff. You're
6: kidding. No, I'm not kidding. Ben Stiller quit. You wouldn't sit in the front of a car. <laughs> you couldn't move into the front of the car I mean I have to move up to. we were two minutes away from where we were going so They were two minutes away uh, from where uh, we were so going to Ben I birthday party you didn't bring a present he said no gifts
2: they always say no gifts oh. everybody brings a gift Oh, so, so the, you're, you're at the show, you
6: won't shake his hand. I have to have a small phobia about shaking people's hands, so I have snot on it, that's all. It's a small phobia. <laughs> it's a small it's a blame phobia. No, and at it, the, it, the it. birthday party.
2: Everybody sang happy birthday with you. I don't birthday, like the
6: happy birthday song. I don't oh, sing the happy birthday song. He never song. sings the happy he birthday song. Larry, you
5: I are, don't like it either. I hate the happy birthday song. It's a trite cliche song.
3: I just loved, first of all, credit to Mel Brooks, because obviously that show is like improv So for him, i get like ang- viscerally angry about the happy birthday song <laughs> and refer to it as a trite cliche like i've had enough of the happy birthday song
0: <laughs> and if you haven't seen the show if i if memory serves uh ben stiller is driving larry and someone else home and they get out of the front seat and
3: larry yeah. refuses to move up i'm okay <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, no, I, I, that's one of, one of my favorite seasons of uh, Curb, and it's Mel great. Brooks is, is phenomenal in it. And then kind of the reveal at the end that it was all the plot of the producers is uh, classic Larry tying everything together. Mm. Um, so, you know, at the end of the day, I guess that's my point is that, uh, you know, no matter what Mel has done in his career, he'll really just be remembered for Curb Your Enthusiasm, at least by <laughs> me.
0: Yeah, it's either Curb or, or, or Norm. I was, I was wondering what it was going to be.
3: <laughs> I know. You know what? I didn't even look if uh, Norm MacDonald talked about Mel Brooks. Shame on me. He probably did. I'm sure he did at some point. Um, but uh, nonetheless, we've spoken long enough. Mel Brooks, one of the true greats. As I said about Mort Saul, you can't tell the history of comedy without talking about Mel Brooks. Um, one of the most you know influential guys ever and uh, uh, beloved filmmakers. So, um, uh, shout out to Mel Brooks. Hope he lives for another ninety-six years. Um, and if you uh, enjoy the program, if you want to get these episodes a week early, you know, if you're sick of waiting around, saying I want to be the first to watch, why you laughing? Um, then you can su- subscribe to the Patreon. And the other stuff you'll get there on the Patreon are bonus episodes, like I mentioned earlier in the show. Um, so if you want, you know, a couple bonus episodes every month, as well as many episodes then um, make sure you get on the Patreon. And the easiest way to find that is blindmike.net. And you can also find free links to the show. If you'd rather support us that way, subscribe on Apple, Spotify, Google Play, YouTube, wherever you get podcasts, and leave us a five-star review. uh, Tap the notification bell, whatever you have to do, um, in order to make sure you know when the show drops every Thursday. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, verygoodshow.org.
0: Verygoodshow.org. That's where you can find Craig and all of his business. All our business. If if the idea of improv brunch tickles your fancy, come on over. Um, if you like curb, folks, I'm sure this is just as good. Yeah. Uh, uh, there is, right, guys. from a quick, by the way, quick Google, there seems to be a good amount of Mel Brooks and Norm MacDonald. Damn. So... <laughs> so Go look at that, and I'm sure we'll all
3: just have a laugh about it by ourselves. Join the Patreon, folks. We'll break it down. Yes, it's foolish of me. I knew if I ended, I was like, "Oh, we're ending the episode with Larry David," but I should have ended with Norm.
0: Yeah, there's uh, there's a, a post on on our Norm McDonald on Reddit called Norm McDonald with Mel Brooks. So, <laughs>
3: oh god, he's probably on the show. He's <laughs> probably.
0: <laughs> oh well, it's a nice um, short. We'll do a short.
3: Yeah, for another day. But we will uh, talk to you guys next time on Why Are You Laughing?